Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Paddock Pass podcast. My name is Neil Morrison of Crash.net, and with me today, I'm very pleased to say, is Mr. David Emmett of Motomatters.com. Hello, David. Hello, Neil. We are both here to discuss the, uh, frankly, fantastic first round of the MotoGP season. And what a round it was. David, uh, would you classify this as a... As a great start to the season? Oh, great start. It was a fantastic start and a disastrous start and about 27 different other things. Uh, it was a, a strange, strange weekend, um, which ended up in a just utterly fantastic race. Absolutely, yeah. And really, the the race was only part of the drama if, if you watched all of Sunday's proceedings and, in fact, Saturday's proceedings as a whole. Uh, the race itself was actually in some doubt, wasn't it? Yes, exactly. I mean, the uh, I don't think I've ever seen so many MotoGP people tweeting about, uh, were t- tweeting pictures of rain um, at any point in the past. It was... Uh, uh, it was com- completely bizarre. I mean, we've had sort of uh, rain before at uh, Qatar in 2009 where they had to postpone it until Monday. Um, but it looked, I mean, it was, it, even then, that was just a sort of more of a light sprinkling. This was, the, it was positively positively biblical on Saturday. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, so basically, we had action on Thursday and Friday as was scheduled. Um, but then Saturday was a complete write-off and it appeared until the very last moment that Sunday we were just about we were going to get away with the whole thing and then it decided to start spinning with rain again just around the time of uh, MotoGP riders taking to the grid yeah exactly people the uh, the Moto2 uh, the Moto2 riders were uh, just leaving um, uh, the podium I mean you know, Franco Morbidelli was just walking off with his trophy and all of a sudden it starts raining it was just um, uh, it was almost as if the desert gods had decided that there wasn't going to be a MotoGP race but um, it, it, in the end we still ended up with one and there was a lot of confusion about the rules and what was going to happen and it was just it uh, in the end the race was fantastic but it looked like a complete cluster um, 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 something muck up <laughs> absolutely anyone that knows David well will uh, will recognise he had to use every single sinew of his strength <laughs> to refrain from saying the word that first came to mind there so congratulations David <laughs> yeah which um, uh, funnily enough r- rhymes with muck up <laughs> absolutely um, obviously we don't expect to normally have rain in, uh, in Qatar the Moto2 and Moto3 test that took place there a week before the race itself um, was affected by rain as well. Uh, how much of what happened was was just bad luck, and then you know what could we put down to sort of negligence on the on the organisers' parts? It's a, uh, I would say it's about um, well, depending on how you look at it. I mean, it, it was not it was ninety percent bad luck just because um, you do need to have a a certain amount of. Um, things coming together. It doesn't rain very often in the desert, and usually when it does rain, um, it, it rains for it, it rains like it rained in two thousand and nine, which means the track gets wet, um, but there's no standing water anywhere, um, and the only concern would have been uh, the reflection, you know, the reflection of the lights for, from the track. But Dorna had a plan in uh, in place to actually cope with that, which was to send people out for. Uh, uh, a few laps, see if it was feasible. If it was feasible, they would have gone out for practice and then there would have been a race. Um, but, I mean, what happened on Saturday was utterly bizarre just because there was so much rain that it was causing flooding everywhere. Um, and what happened, again, I think even if the if we'd had the same rain that we had on Saturday, or on Sunday rather, uh, another track, then we would have had a rain delay as well because it wasn't that it was... Wet. It was a bit like Aston, where it was the, the track was bone dry in one part of the track and and soaking wet in others. Absolutely. Um, so as if there wasn't enough uh, kind of nerves and tension on the grid just before the MotoGP race started, we had this situation where we were being delayed. The riders were sent out on a, a cycling lab after about half an hour, and they got to turn fourteen, and it turned out to be well, from from reports, pretty wet. 
And yeah, they they showed the they showed the footage, but everyone was running 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 on there. It looked like about half the grid sort of decided, you know what, corners, pa, who needs them? Let's <laughs> um, uh, uh, let's go straight on and see uh, uh, see what happens. So it was uh, it, it was very odd. I mean, one thing to come back about the weather. The worst thing about this is is a night race. If this wasn't a night race, we wouldn't have had the same sort of issue. We might still have lost the the, the Saturday because there was so much rain. Um, but if it, if it was just a normal day race, then for a start, we could start the season earlier, which would be nice, you know, start racing in the beginning of February rather um, or the end of February rather than the end of March. Uh, wouldn't have to worry about the dew because that was the other the, the other big concern and was something we'll probably talk about later on. The fact that the dew starts to form on the uh, on the ground at sort of ten o'clock, making it really really tricky. So yeah, because they're quite unique conditions in that the temperature starts going down at quite a rate, and then the humidity starts to rise around yeah. around ten pm local time. So with the MotoGP start scheduled to get underway at what nine o'clock, they pretty much yeah. had you know the amount that they did delay was pretty much the maximum that they could have done. And there were even some riders that were saying that. They should have just postponed the whole thing yeah. completely. Um, yeah, I think Alvaro Bautista was one of the riders who was completely against, uh, who thought it was the wrong decision. But then again, uh, almost everyone else that I read, they seemed to be, uh, or, or listened to, they, they seemed to be, felt, you know, well, you know, we had a race and it was it was pretty much fine. Exactly. And we didn't have to spend, you know, a collective uh, amount of, I don't know, amounting to thousands of euros to delay flights and, you know, all that sort of thing. Um, so to the race itself, um, it was pretty much standard uh, Qatar fare. No, we had a Ducati and a Yamaha fighting for the lead. We had Valentino Rossi coming through the field from a terribly bad grid position. Uh, we had a few crashes. We had a few surprises up there. Um, but basically, I think we, we must start with Maverick Vinales because he's basically been the, the, the guy of preseason. He's been fastest in four, each of the four preseason tests. He was on pole position. He was fastest in most of the free practice sessions. His pace on, I think, Friday evening was far superior to anyone else. Um, he appeared to be the shoe-in for, for the first race win. And there was a little while in this first race where it didn't look to be going his way. Lap five or lap six, he was starting to lose a bit of time to the front guys. Was there ever any doubt in your mind, Dave, that uh, that this might not all pan out in Vinales' favour? Yeah, around lap five or six, because he was a lot further back than I'd than I'd expected to to see him, and I wasn't sure that he would actually sort of make it and come through the field. Like you say, he was fastest. Uh, he was, you know, fast throughout practice. Practice basically looked like a continuation of uh, of testing, where he was, you know, he looked like he owned the series. And then the start of the race, he well, he he complained a little bit about being uh, knocked. Uh, was it knocked offline or something? Who yeah, being a bit bumped Z- out by Joanne Zarco. Uh, but I, I was watching that today, and it didn't really look. Like I mean, it didn't look like Zarco was being particularly aggressive. He was just—he was just on the inside, and he—and he ended up being where Maverick Vinales wanted to be. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think we'll come. We'll touch on Johan Zarco a little bit more later on in the show. Um, but uh, but Vinales basically around lap six, lap seven, quickly found his rhythm. And uh, if you go back through his analysis of his lap times through the race, we saw just that unerring consistency, uh, which eventually brought him to the front where he found Andrea De Vizioso. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it's funny that you say you said if you look at the analysis because I remember you uh, you telling me over the winter that um at the I think at the Movistar launch, the 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 launch that what Vinales has been spending his time doing was going through the uh, lap charts looking at the consistency of Marquez and the consistency of um uh, of Rossi understanding that the second half of the race is where is the important part that's where races are lost, are lost and won and it really was exactly how it played out this time you know he came through uh, and he met Dovicioso and what he did to Dovicioso the passes he put on Dovicioso were just spectacularly good they were so clinical so clean I mean they were tight they were really tight um, but they were clean and they were just uh, they were a real real joy to watch yeah, I think we'd we'd seen um, previous to the the penultimate lap 
several people making moves at turn four that seemed to be quite a popular place to, to overtake but then on the penultimate lap Vinales got a great drive through turn four and then lined up Davizio's over five and that was just a really creative bit of I don't even know whether that was just him thinking on his feet whether he had planned it to, to do it there but uh, yeah it was a, a really superb piece of riding um, yeah yeah, and also because he kept on um, I think the first time he got past it was like turn 10 and then there was still too much uh, there wasn't enough track for him to actually gap uh, Dovici and then the uh, it was like 2007 again, all uh, uh, down the front straight with the Ducatis just totally blasting past everyone. Yeah. And then every time he passed Dovicio, so it would be sort of a couple of corners earlier until he eventually he sort of uh, landed on turn five, which turned out to give him just enough margin to keep uh, Dovi away through turn one. And speaking of Dovicio, so I mean, this is the third year in a row that he's finished second in uh, Qatar. Third time he's finished second to a Yamaha as well. Usually they've been quite close scratch. Um, and I guess if you looked at it in one way, you could say, oh, Davizioso failing to take his opportunity again. But I felt that this time more than than the, the previous two years, um, that this was basically Davizioso taking that package to the absolute maximum and, and almost exceeding what, what we thought he could do because he... He went with that soft rear tire at the start of the race, didn't he? I have to absolutely agree. Um, uh, he looked so he looked so uh, so good, so much better than he has in in previous years. Um, this really was, uh, you know, pushing the bike, getting the absolute maximum out of the bike. I think he'll uh, feel less bad about losing this one than he would about others because you know he he gave he well as they say he left it all out on track. Um, there was nothing he had nothing left by the uh, by the time he came back and it was um, it really was an outstanding performance also very promising I think this year that uh, you know for, for the rest of the year there are going to be there are definitely going to be years where uh, where he is going to be winning races yeah yeah races where he's going to be winning races yeah oh sorry weekends uh, sorry yes sorry yes 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 races weekends exactly yes at, at, at some point I mean he, he's he looks more competitive than he was last year um, again possibly also just because of the confidence that, that, that he took from um, uh, from the win last year it really the, the, the motorcycle racing happens between the ears and um, that really uh, that, that that's exactly what, is, what seems to have happened to Dovicioso absolutely yeah there was a section I think um during the race around lap 15 or lap 16 where Maverick made his first move and I just thought like well that's it really he's just going to you know pull away because we all knew that he was able to keep that pace and maybe even increase it towards the end of the race um, but the videos are really you know put it all back in and I think he set his personal best lap you know four laps from the end um, yeah. which is which is quite an impressive feat on a soft Michelin rear tyre around a, a track surface which is fairly abrasive um, with the sand and dirt and all the, all that kind of thing on it so great rides from the first two men you can't you have to say it's a great ride from the man in third as well nobody expected Valentino Rossi to get on the podium paper I mean I obviously I managed to um, uh, make an idiot of myself on Twitter by uh, boldly predicting that Valentino that there was no chance Valentino Rossi would get on the podium <laughs> to be fair I was basing myself on the words of uh, um, that uh, knowledgeable uh, MotoGP expert Valentino Rossi who said that uh, there was absolutely no chance he would get uh, he would get on the podium he really felt because um, he certainly he struggled the first couple of days he had one good session where they felt they, they may, may have found something and I think perhaps the conditions came to him a little bit uh, gave him a little bit more confidence in the front end he was really struggling with the, uh, with, the with the front tire the conditions came to him and he found the speed but you know this is this is Valentino Rossi this is why at the start of any race you always put a little asterisk in it. you always say no well he probably won't win this one but that's why you always use the word probably because uh, there is a there is always a, a significant chance that he you know he's, he's going to pull it off because he's got the Sunday two tenths which he sort of leaves lying around I think he made reference to that in the uh, the press conference after the race he said something that you know on my age it's difficult to find the absolute top motivation every time you go out in the race bike and you know it's almost as if he needs that excitement before the race on the yeah. Sunday he needs people to come out and start doubting him um, I was reading I think it was on uh, on GP1 the Italian website which um, obviously they they debrief with Valentino after the, the press conference speaking in Italian and uh, one of the final lines he said was that one was for everyone that said I wasn't going to be on the podium today you know so it's almost as if in these kind of situations he just yeah as you say pulls that little bit extra out of the hat um, and it was, it was quite interesting over the, re the weekend actually because he hadn't really uh 
touched on the front tyre and why he's been struggling so much during the preseason test. But um, on Thursday and Friday night, he was saying that basically Mitzlin's new front tyre is just a little bit too soft for his liking, and he finds the sorry he struggles to find the confidence to to enter the corners as he would like. Yeah, exactly. And he, he also said the uh, because they brought a tyre to the uh, private test at Sepang, which they did in November. Uh, which was a little bit stiffer and which they liked, but the other riders didn't like it so much. And so he basically got outvoted. And then I think when they turned up at Sepang in uh, end of January, uh, beginning of February, the tyre just wasn't there. It just wasn't, um, uh, you know, they, they were back to a slightly different, slightly softer, both carcass and uh, compound. And that gives him a little bit less confidence, sort of, you know, on the brakes, pitching it into the corner. So we had two Yamahas on the podium. I, for one, expected Mark Marquez to be right in the mix at the front. Um, he was the fastest in the, in the afternoon warm-up session on Sunday. Um, he had been pretty competitive throughout the weekend, um, although he had said on several occasions that the Honda was still struggling with that old acceleration problem and he was getting uh, outdriven on the final corner. Um, is that even a... Is that even a word, art-driven? It is now. It is. There you go. Exactly. That's good enough. If it's got your seal of approval, I shall use it more <laughs> in the future. But uh, but Marquez basically was uh, was lamenting his, his front tyre choice. Um, he is known to prefer Michelin's harder option front. Uh, he is a crazy late breaker, as is Cal Crutchlow. Um, the Honda tends to make most of its time up under brakes. Therefore, it overworks the front tyre. And they usually have to go with the, the hardest compound. But because of the, the conditions, they weren't able to choose that. And uh, and it seemed that that really worked against them. Yeah, exactly. Well, because I, I mean, I asked uh, the uh, Michelin people after the race. You know, were a bit, especially after what because Cal was really upset about it. He said, you know, we were forced to use. Uh, um, uh, you know, this wasn't my choice using the uh, using the medium uh, tire. Um, uh, he wanted to use the hard. Basically, said we were forced to use it. I asked Michelin, you know, were they allowed to use the the, the hard? And they and Michelin said, yeah, yeah, no, they. It was it was free. It was a free choice we gave them advice but they were free to choose whatever they liked but I think again this comes down to the confusion during the start because no one really knew what was going on what time they would be starting um, uh, the start got I think it got delayed twice uh, they started out they were definitely going to go on the hard tyre but then the conditions started to change and it started to look like they were going to get into the point where uh, where the dew is starting to form and so Michelin and Michelin basically said you know you're much better off using the medium tyre because at least you'll have grip because if it gets cold then you'll just go down you'll just you'll just crash out and so all of them switched to the medium front and that's turned out i mean it was sort of fine for five or six laps but then after that it got cooked and uh, and and was no good and you really sorry and we were talking about maverick vinales earlier uh, uh, did i think maverick vinales gonna, was going to win in the, in the first few laps no it looked like Mar- marquez is to win um, but then his front tyre went away and, and, and that was the end of it. Yeah, it was something similar to what we saw at Silverstone last year. I think when Marquez had to use the, the, the medium front and uh, spent the whole time saving the, the front end of his bike on his elbows, from what I remember. Um, yeah. wasn't wasn't quite able to, to match the performance of the front men. Um, I guess we also have to bear in mind that um, Marquez, we don't know for sure, but was probably using the hard front at, the end of the very last night of the test when he crashed twice within you know 20 minutes of each of, yeah. you know of one another so there was that thing as well you know Michelin probably were quite entitled to say like look you know if he is pushing towards the front even if he's not pushing that much there is a chance of him crashing um so yeah I think you know Marquez obviously it'll hurt it'll hurt like hell to see Vinales starting the way he's done but you know 13 points for fourth place are a lot better than zero and yeah, you, you have to yeah, imagine it would have been a, a big risk of him falling knowing Marquez you know if he had gone for the front and he was up at the front fighting you have to imagine there would have been a risk of him crashing out that's the lesson of 2015 you know that's why he won won the championship last year when he was sort of settling for third and fourth and fifth um, but to be fair on Marquez Marquez said that uh, yes he had the option and, and yes the hard might have been better but you, you know you never know uh, and yes there was a chance that he would could have been running up front with a hard front, but there was also just as much of a chance that he could have fallen off. Um, so he was uh, he was uh, a lot more prepared to settle for you know what he's got rather than Crutchlow, whereas Crutchlow was just livid. But then again, you know, unsurprising that Cal, uh, the Cal was livid because he fell off twice. 
absolutely. Yeah, the first time where he just uh, he went offline, I think, going into the final turn, and then he remounted and found his throttle stuck open just under a lap later, and had to pretty much take avoidant action and and jump off the bike. The MCN report, Simon Patterson made a good point. In BSB, you're not allowed to remount, um, get back on your bike if it's if you have a crash precisely for this for this reason that there could be crash damage which uh, i can't make up my mind whether that's a good idea or not because on the other hand most of the time you know 90 times a time maybe 95 times out of 10 when you get back on the bike uh, you can still ride it i mean do you have any strong feelings about this neil i think if there's any obvious um damage to the bike um like cal was listening to what he said after the race and he commented that the handlebar was bent um you know quite badly and he was having to try and push it back into place you know i think it should be left up to the marshals at that time to make a quick snap judgment on whether they think that bike is in a suitable shape i mean if it's if it's been a fast get off i think they should maybe take some time to give the bike a quick once over and if they see something sticking out or looking like it you know could you know could fall off or fall apart then uh, then obviously they have to try and keep the rider in there but in that situation obviously you're going to be dealing with a, a, an adrenaline filled rider yeah not just an adrenaline filled rider you're you're basically putting volunteer marshals up against uh, uh, people who are being paid very large sums of money and for, uh, whose whose livelihood depends on on them finishing a race so yeah i mean i'm entirely sympathetic to your point of view but um <laughs> uh, it's uh, it it's a lot of responsibility on people who are basically just fans who find a way to go to races for cheer for nothing yeah exactly it's one thing telling a, a pumped up rider who's paid to you know to pay to finish the race it's another thing telling Cal Crutchlow in that situation I imagine <laughs> <laughs> well I, do, do you know what it reminds me of, it reminds me of um, uh, Jerez in 2011 when uh, Valentino Rossi managed to take out uh, Casey Stoner and uh, the marshals all rushed out and um, uh, to, to help them both uh, get back on um, uh, get back on track only they were all rushing to Valentino Rossi's bike to help him start and then they moved over to Stoner's but in case you know Casey being Casey was less than delighted with the uh, with how the proceedings had gone uh, but then again they also had the problem with then uh, that was the I think that was one of the first years with the seamless gearbox and they couldn't start or it was very difficult to actually uh, bump start the the Honda at that time you had to there was a little uh, some little hoojima flip a little a little latch or catch or uh, some some uh, something physical which they had to lock that's lock the clutch in place to actually start it and it was only later that they actually put a lever on the handlebars to to, to make it possible to bump start it uh, so yeah um, uh, Valentino Rossi did Honda a, a big a big favor by taking Casey Stone right in that corner then and who would have thought Honda would have named such a such an <laughs> integral part of their system a hujima flip as well <laughs> technical <laughs> term i mean i yeah. don't want to uh, i don't want to be confusing the leaders too much but sometimes you just can't avoid technical jargon exactly so uh we're going to finish off the the first part of this show uh we've basically gone through the front four or five riders um there was some really really impressive rides throughout the top 10 scott redding i think was uh worthy of note um he had a pretty bad uh, opening couple of tests but managed to turn it around in the final test in Qatar and was pretty strong all weekend uh, Jack Miller again was was an eighth um, you know a fantastic ride for Miller um, yeah. I think that's the closest he's ever been to the leader of uh, in a dry race so big big improvement for, for Miller and also Alex Rins top rookie uh, ninth place and just 14 seconds behind Vinales at the flag also worthy of note but David I think we have to speak about it brilliant because Alicia Spargo was arguably one of the riders of the day yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, basically, Alicia Spargaro nearly, uh, uh, he finished just behind two uh, two factory Hondas. He nearly beat uh, Danny Pedrosa and um, uh, Mark Marquez was basically dropping back through the field. Another, another lap, I think, and Espargaro would have had Marquez as well. So uh, just an outstanding ride. He really suits, his riding style really suits that, uh, the, suits the Aprilia better. The He can be much more aggressive with the front end, which is, you know, he's very much a front end rider. And that, that I think, he's just totally gelled with, with that Aprilia. And also, it's a, it's a sign of how good the Aprilia. You know, the Aprilia has once again made a significant step in competitiveness. Uh, I think the next step is a lot more difficult, but this one, uh, he's now he's now you know competitive. The, the the bike is now competitive. 
Yeah. And considering he was um he was saying towards the end of the season it was his aim to be shouting um at the, the door of the front five or the front six from to be doing it straight away and uh, straight out of the blocks is really something else. It's also crazy. I was just looking at um at sort of the lap by lap chart and I think he ended the first lap outside the fifteen, he was fifteenth or sixteenth, um, stranded behind a host of uh of uh, satellite bikes and he was just able to manage that consistency the whole way through. Um and he was what seven seconds off the the race winner by the end of it. Um, yeah, so you know, seven and a half, seven point six, seven point seven, something like that. So close, comfortably uh, the closest the Aprilia has ever been to the front of, uh, of yeah. the MotoGP class. And um, you know, again, another sign that uh, the diversity of machinery in this year's championship really is something to behold. Yeah, exactly. I mean, right now the only bad bike on the grid is the is the KTM, but then that's hardly surprising given that the that they've only just started. Yeah, exactly. And here's something to bear in mind as well. I was thinking this the other night, and bear with me, it is a very big if, but had Iannone finished, let's say, in the top three or the top four, we would have had uh, five different bikes in the top seven, which would yeah. have been really amazing. Yeah. yeah, really something else, you know, for yeah. Grand Prix race. And I don't think we ever would have had a situation like that before in, uh, in the Premier class. Um, okay, cool. So just before we move on, David, it would be criminal to neglect to mention Johan Zarco. What a performance on his MotoGP debut. Yeah, I mean, just a sensational start to his MotoGP uh, debut. Take He was, what, in the lead within about, I think, four by... Six corners. Six. Yeah, sixth. Yep. Yeah, there you go. Um, uh, someone pointed out uh, to me on Twitter that he, because he's the he's the first rider ever to lead a race from the start on his debut in the class. Someone said, "Yeah, well, what about Jorge Lorenzo?" Because he was on pole. But uh, I, I went back and watched it, and Lorenzo on pole led for about um, uh, about hundred meters before everyone came past him. Uh, now other riders have won. I mean, Biaggi won on his debut in uh, in nineteen ninety eight. Yeah, I, I looked all this up, you know. <laughs> um, I, was, I was trusting you, but but, but not only yeah, you, know, you don't you don't have to look it up because you've got a motor course mind. There's statistics already in there. But he, he was he also set the fastest lap. And the only that you know the only the last time that happened was Mark Mark Marquez in 2013. Valentino Rossi in 2000 was the same. Uh, these are really. I mean, it's really impressive to lead, and he led for six laps. And he and he was pulling away whenever he crashed. He he had yeah. been gapping the. I think it was Marquez at that point in second. He had been gapping him about three, four tenths a lap, uh, just before he fell at turn two. Obviously, he was another guy to run the soft rear tire, um, and that was something that he. I think he had used that tire at the end of Friday night session in FP3, and had used it to great effect. You know, I think he he set four. I was going back and looking at this earlier. He, was, he set four laps in the, the low 50, uh, 55s at that point. Um, so when he selected that tire, he obviously thought, right, this is it. I need to go like mad from the off. Um, but one of the things that impressed me most is if you consider this is his first race in the Premier Class and we had a 45-minute delay, I think you could see in, in Folger's performance initially how that almost affected him. Yeah. Um, um, Alex Rins also spoke of feeling a lot of nerves on the grid. I mean, how could you not? And for Zarko, it worked completely the opposite. He said he just felt calm. And whenever they found out that the, the race was about to start, he said, I'm absolutely ready to go. And uh, I just thought, wow, that, that takes some balls to, to kind of keep that that calmness, um, you know, throughout was uh, was mildly impressive indeed. Yeah, it, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, it, it probably helps that he's a little bit older because he's 26. So it makes it a little bit easier not to get distracted. Um, but um, what I found interesting was in the press conference, uh, Valentino Rossi said that uh, Franco Morbidelli had warned him about uh, about Sarko, saying, you know, he's really good, and especially in the second half of the race, in the last uh, the the last ten laps, he really knows how to make a tire last. So I think maybe he would have got caught. He probably wouldn't have won because you've got to think that Maverick would have come through and and done him, and uh, uh, you know, and Dovi would have been through, been there as well, and, and, and maybe Valentino. Um, okay, cool. So that pretty much uh, that wraps everything up for the first part of the show. Uh, we're going to come back in the second part and speak about Moto2 and Moto3. Neil, are you following Paddock Pass podcast on Facebook? Do you know what, David? I'm not. I'm ashamed to say. Where can I find the Paddock Pass podcast on Facebook? You can find the Paddock Pass podcast on facebook.com slash paddockpasspodcast. 
Okay, so welcome back to the second part of the show. Um, we've discussed the MotoGP race in some detail, and we're going to move on now to the, the support categories. Uh, Moto2 was perhaps the least exciting race of the day. We saw Franco Morbidelli riding all the way to his first Grand Prix win in some style, and he really uh, asserted his, uh, his claim to be the favourite for this year's championship. Maybe it wasn't the best race, David, but it certainly threw up a few interesting talking points nonetheless. Yes, it was the it was the worst race of the night, but um, that doesn't mean it was a terrible race by Moto Two standards. It was still you know pretty decent by Moto Two standards. Uh, <laughs> Damning uh, with thin press, if ever you heard it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, yes, yeah. I mean, Moto Two used to be the bit where we would have a bit of a nap before Moto GP started, but it's. Last year it was pretty exciting, and it's been it's been pretty good recently. This was not a thriller, but still very interesting. As you say, it did throw up some talking points. I think Morbidelli did what uh, we were been uh, expecting him to do. He really, I mean, he really seems to have made a uh, step forward this year. He's been fast all through testing, and then he really came through during the race. If we looked at uh, you know Frank was riding towards the end of last year, uh, there did seem to be that obvious weakness of the final couple of laps and I guess it was always like in total contrast to someone like Zarko who he often found himself against who was just astonishing in the last two or three laps of the race Morbidelli seems to you know that was kind of one of the things I was looking out for here and you know there didn't seem to be any drastic drop off in the pace and even you know even if there was he had so much in hand over Ludi that uh, he was able just to manage it till the flag so we had the top five of, of Morbidelli Ludi, Nakagami, Oliveira and Alex Marquez um is that is that going to be the championship really right there? I mean, I'm, I'm struggling to think of anyone else that could possibly, you know, uh, put a season together. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's early to say. There were a few people who uh, uh, who impressed me. I mean, f- first of all, uh, to come back to Morbidelli, what Morbidelli did was beat uh, Tom Lutie at Qatar and. Luti has always been exceptionally strong at Qatar. I think he's won. He's won at least one. He might have won a couple of times, but he's always been there or thereabouts. Uh, so, uh, if you have any aspirations of being uh, Moto Two champion, the first thing you have to do is beat Tom Luti at Qatar, and Franco Morbidelli did that. Uh, Nakagami was good. Marquez, Alex Marquez which seemed to be like Franco Morbidelli, you know, uh, was last year, which is he just, he was strong at this. He was very strong at the start of the race, but just faded back to, uh, back to nowhere. Um, but, you know, I think Miguel Oliveira on the KTM, that was really impressive. I mean, well, w- what did you think of KTM's debut? I thought it was quite remarkable, to be fair, um, for them to come in straight away. And Morbid, um, sorry, Oliveira was in the running for most of the free practice and, and well we didn't have qualifying but most of the race for you know top three um, and you know I kind of was taken aback whenever you said that he was one of your championship predictions um, you know one of your predictions for a shot at the championship I thought that was maybe just a little bit too soon for you know a new chassis um, but you know essentially that is the team that has won the Moto2 World Championship for the past two yep. years um, Oliveira is a real class act a real clever guy and a very very talented rider as well and it seems like the bike is 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 the business. Um, for it to be up challenging Calix for a podium in the first round um, bodes very well indeed. It's really going to be interesting to see how this develops because I think I said to to you last time that um, someone um, a or perhaps I wrote it anyway a senior factory figure from a different factory spoke to me at, uh, somewhere and told me that they expected KTM to uh, ditch their uh, trellis frame in MotoGP because you know everyone else is on the on an aluminium beam frame and that's what uh, that's what you need to win a race uh, or win races and, and championships but i think uh, Oliveira's debut on a on a bike which well has sort of similar characteristics you know it's a it's a it's a powerful machine with a heavy machine a lot of brakes um uh, with 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 decent tires uh, and he's still he, he's still i mean he came very very close to getting a podium um, uh, on the first outing so it's clear this bike uses exactly the same sort of frame concept this this steel trellis frame so it it looks to be working quite well and and I'm really intrigued to see how this is going to work out for the rest of the season yeah I know the Tech 3 bike and the Sutters dropped away towards the end of the race, but I think at one point we did have four chassis, four different makes of chassis in the first five or six positions in the in the race. And this 
definitely has been something we've spoken about before and we've said that Moto2 really is kind of lacking in terms of uh, the diversity there. Um, Tech 3 with uh, Javi Vierge was quite impressive throughout the weekend. Um, you know, initially uh, Dominic Agueda and Danny Kent were showing quite well in the suitor. Um, you know, there's definitely some promise there that uh, we're going to have a bit more of a, um, you know, a bit more variety uh, in the front of KF Moto 2. Xavi Vierge is, is interesting also because the Tech 3, I think, are on Kayaba suspension and they're the only uh, the only team who are on Kayaba this year. And so that is a that puts them in a slightly difficult situation um, because they don't have the data that uh, either WP or um, or Olin's have. It makes it much more difficult for them. And yet uh, Vierge, also I think it, it really helps having Vierge on the, on the bike again uh, this year because he was on the bike again last year. And uh, just having that stability, it, it, it's really, really important. Absolutely, yeah. And he's a guy that um, we've seen at the Super Prestigio in the last two years, David, and he's always been, you know, quite fast and quite up the, um, you know, usually around the sharp end. Yeah, exactly. Uh, he's one of those. He's a sleeper. He's one of those riders who you sort of um, you're vaguely aware of on your in your sort of peripheral vision, and then all of a sudden you sort of like raise, hang on, wait a minute, you know, this guy might actually be quite good. Uh, so I think he, he's he's definitely uh, one to uh, one to look out for. Speaking of ones to look out for, I for one felt in some way vindicated for hyping this young chap up about two years ago. Um, but finally, he does look pretty handy. Cedo Pons sure, uh, certainly does know how to spot a, a talent. He has certainly had enough of them in his Moto2 team in the last couple of seasons. And Fabio Cordoraro, at 17 years old, finishing seventh in his first ever Moto2 race, uh, showed quite a lot of promise. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was a, it was a really strong race from Quattararo. Uh, again, that Cito Pons setup is really outstanding. Cito Pons really does uh, have a an eye for talent. If you look at you know who he's had to, had through his team, uh, Paul Esparga, Maverick Vinales, uh, Alex Rince, these are all you know solid riders. These are all very very talented riders. And Quattararo, I think also you, you know Quattararo had a bad year in part perhaps because the just because the pressure that was being put on him. And so going to a situation where he's not expected to perform straight away gives him a little bit more freedom, takes it off of him. And yeah, he's 17 now and not 16 and all of these you, you really notice it with these young guys that um uh, the difference between 16 and 17 is is a lot bigger than it is between you know a 22 and a 23 year old so uh, the, that 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 maturity probably helps a little bit as well but it was just it was just an outstanding ride and he's clearly very very talented absolutely and i think if you know we look at the the guy that's that's bossing it in moto gp at the moment maverick finales he wasn't the guy that had an absolutely um linear progression through the classes you know he had one or two little slip-ups as well you know, he didn't handle one or two situations in the best way. You could maybe say the same about uh, Quartararo last year. You know, should he really have left the, the Monlau squad at the end of 2015 yeah. um, to go to Leopard uh, on a KTM, which he never seemed to gel with. But he does have youth on his side. And uh, as you say, at 17 years of age in his first Moto2 race to be this high up, um, you know, it, it does bode extremely well. Yeah, I, I was quite impressed with uh, Luca Marini as well, who, uh, who finished just behind um, uh, uh, Quartararo. I mean, you know, Marini has been one of those riders. The other thing is you feel sorry for Marini because he's um, Valentino Rossi's stepbrother. And um, that is, I mean, who would want to be Valentino Rossi's brother? It would be a complete nightmare because you're, uh, unless you're better than him, which is... Uh, quite the ask, shall we say? Um, uh, it's you, you, you're always going to get ne negative uh, example. I, I'm reminded to a certain extent of um, uh, uh, Jordi Krauf, who was um, uh, Johan Krauf's um, son, uh, who was a perfectly decent footballer, but just not, you know, arguably the greatest or one of the greatest footballers ever ever to have lived. So it's it just it, it it's a tough uh, it's a pretty tough place to be in. And he, he did play for Manchester United, which is a stain on any man's character in my eyes, uh, it has to be said. Um, on that note, we shall move on to uh, to the junior category, to Moto3. Uh, typical, typical Moto3 race here. Fast, yeah. frenetic, group of nine riders at the front fighting for the podium on the last lap. And uh, I think there were a few surprises in there. I didn't expect to see a couple of those riders challenging so close towards the front. Um, and the guy that won the race, Juan Mir, what a rider he looks. 
Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it was a, I mean, it was a fantastic race, and I was particularly exp- uh, impressed with Juan Mir. He reminded me to an extent a lot like uh, a lot of uh, Binder last year, in that he was uh, his. Uh, a placement. I mean, Moto Three is all about sort of slipstreaming and making sure that you're being in the right place at the right time. And uh, Mir, throughout that race, always made sure he was in the top three, four, five riders. Uh, uh, made sure he never really got broken and dropped. Uh, he was always close there and thereabout. And the break that he made on the last lap was just was really impressive. Really, really impressive. Yeah, it was. I thought the right measure of, of uh, you know, being measured and also aggressive when he needed to be. Um, and as you say, I mean, you, you mentioned Binder last year. If you look even book the year before that, Oliveira towards the end of 2015 was just an absolute expert at that, just placing himself in the front two or three, the entire race. Even if there was a, a big gaggle of 14, 15 riders, he never would let himself slip below that. And uh, he would always ensure that he was just exactly where he needed to be come the last lap. John McPhee, first race for the British talent team. First time for John on a you know full factory Honda as well. And uh, he really showed that he is deserving of that uh, of that berth. I think uh, a few people might have questioned whether McPhee was, you know, what he had done the last year and maybe even the year before that had merited this, uh, this ride. But I think John uh, dispelled those doubts quite emphatically. Yeah, exactly. I mean, basically, uh, again, he's in a good structure. The structure around him is really good. Jeremy McWilliams was was there. He was there in the preseason, and he was there at the first race. And again, this this there is this uh, almost fashion for having spotters, uh, for having people around rider coaches to point out the little weaknesses. And again, because McWilliams is there, he's pointing out just the the the, the last little details, which are the difference between uh, a really strong result and. Uh, or and and just missing out somewhere, so I think having that this whole package around him has, has turned him around from being a rider with potential to a you know just to being a contender. Absolutely, and I was speaking to John at the the launch of that British talent team um, in London a couple of weeks ago, and he said that the first test that that team had in Hareth, he came into the pit garage and he said there was about 10 HRC technicians coming in around him to ask him about various parts of the bike and how it was performing. And for you know a guy that was in the, the Saxo Print uh, Puzo squad, which was basically fighting for its life in the first half of 2016, um, you know, to come into this sort of stable structure, which is well-funded, uh, I imagine, you know, Dona have ensured that no no stone has been left unturned it must just be a fantastic boost that so many of the things that you're worrying about in the previous year now they can just be cast to one side and you can really focus on improving your riding um racecraft you know things that you can't really think about when you're scared about your bike breaking down or about your team not having the money to show up at the next race yeah 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 exactly yeah. or, or uh, even then uh things like because i know that uh, last year uh mcphee complained about not being able to go for a test he wanted to go for a test but uh in the end they didn't let him test um there wasn't really enough money to go testing all those little details it'll just sort of you know preys on your mind and weakens your concentration just it's a distraction and he has fewer distractions and um uh and it really paid off yeah and i was listening to what he said after the race and he said that he was almost he was so comfortable at the front that he was almost playing with the riders and he was choosing and picking his positions and he said he thought he was absolutely perfectly placed going into the last lap and it was he made a very very small mistake at turn 14 I think three corners from the flag and he said if it if it wasn't for that mistake he would have come onto the backs well onto the start and finish straight you know able to slipstream John Muir so it was yeah. just a tiny little mistake that maybe cost him a shot at that at that victory but still second place to start the year new team new bike is uh, is quite a quite a statement to make I mean there's a whole host of riders in that opening group David that I could see, you know, fighting for the championship. We had we had Fanati who was back. Obviously, we had Aaron Cannon. Jorge Martin looks like a great rider now that he's on a yeah. Honda as well. Digio is in there. Um, Mino, Andre Mino. Yeah, Mino too. Yeah, I mean, you know, considering the second half of uh, 2016, you have to fancy he'll be in with a shot. Um, you know, Moto Three looks uh, looks as strong as ever. Yeah, yeah, there were some really, really good names. I mean, uh, to an extent, one of the great things about uh, about Moto Three is that phenomenal class of rookies from last year are, are in their second year, and um, uh, most of them are with the same team, and so they're you know they're in they're in a really, really good situation. They've just got a lot better, um, and it's just it, just the racing is a lot better. I mean, I, I know you're a big Fanati fan. What was your uh, how, what was your feelings about uh, about Romano's uh, Romano's return? 
I thought it was uh, it was just the same old story really from Romano. Um, no one I don't think was expecting him to be slow, um, and it came as no surprise to see him up at the up at the front. Um, but it was that sort of that sort of normal issue that he seems to have, where he's you know well placed throughout the race, and he's kind of in and around fourth or fifth place, and then it comes to the last two or three laps, and you know someone puts their bike in front of him, and he goes wide, and you know then it's it's all gone. Um, you know that was kind of the one. Uh, you know the one criticism I had often for you know the previous two years really um, he seemed to he just seems to struggle in that kind of situation but you know we can maybe put this down to him being a little bit ring rusty of course he hasn't raced since uh, uh, June last year um, um, it would have been J- July perhaps because he raced in um, uh, he raced at the Saxon ring so did. it would have been July yeah, yeah it would have been yeah. July last year okay so yeah so he hasn't raced since July last year um, let's maybe see if our judgement for uh, for a few years yeah. on the line but yeah I mean he certainly seems to be uh, fast enough I don't think I was ever in doubt um, but it's it's just that little final ingredient that is, uh, has been missing until now and well it wasn't exactly on show uh, on Sunday um, but nonetheless I, I still uh, I stick by my prediction that he's going to win the championship this year <laughs> <laughs> even though I have doubted it uh, seeing, uh, seeing Joanne Mayer and uh, John McPhee as strong as they were okay cool so that is uh, that's everything from, from Moto3 David and I are going to start a new feature um, that is uh, that's going to be in the podcast for this season, and it is where we have to choose our winners and losers from the race weekend. Okay, so that basically means that David and I are going to choose uh, one person that we thought stood out uh, during the race weekend, and we're going to present our opinions and try to come to some sort of agreement who is right i.e. me and then <laughs> after that we will talk about our losers of the weekend then do the same thing okay so David uh, considering you are my guest on the show uh, I'm going to ask you for your winner of the race weekend who impressed you the most and this this is open to all three classes by the way there were some outstanding uh, really really outstanding performances this year I mean uh, or this weekend on uh, and during the race uh, it's very tempting to go for Joan Zarco because it was such a surprise just his race pace and he is clearly going to be a lot more special than we thought he might be but it's hard to look past Maverick Vinales because that was just an absolute masterclass of racing it was it was indeed it was um, and I think it was not just a, a masterclass of racing but a masterclass of his temperament as well of yeah. uh, managing to remain calm to, to take the pressure and to basically to you know forget about it um, I think we heard Lynn Jarvis was into viewed on the grid before the MotoGP race and um, Dylan Gray, Dorna's pitling commentator, asked whether he had noticed any signs of nerves on uh, on Maverick's face or, you know, in his general body language leading up to the leading up to the Sunday evening. And Jarvis just said, I don't think he does get nervous. He just always seems as calm and as jovial and friendly as ever. To say judging by that performance, um, yeah, didn't didn't seem to be any hint of uh, nerves in his riding. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it's funny because that was the one thing that I noticed in Park Ferme as well. I mean, you know, after he won the race, he, yeah, he was happy. But then w- once he came in and sort of like congratulated everyone, he was, you know, oh, well, OK, fine, whatever. Yes, great race, all the rest of it. But he didn't look, he didn't look like um, he was absolutely overjoyed which you see i mean when 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 rossi wins uh when marquez wins even when lorenzo wins or pedrosa wins they look absolutely delighted with maverick it was like yes okay great got a race win uh well, now then he's already thinking about argentina it was just uh very he, he seems to, to be very a very balanced person but we shall have to wait and see what happens at the next race Absolutely. I, I actually interviewed Maverick at Mizano on the Friday afternoon last year. And that, if you remember, that was five days after the Silverstone race. So five mm-hmm. days after his first race win. And I asked him, um, the first question I, I, I asked was whether the victory had sunk in. And he kind of spoke for a little short 10 seconds. Oh, it's great. You know, I've, I've been dreaming of this moment all my life and it's wonderful. And then that was it. That was the last mention that was the Silverstone. <laughs> he started talking about how good he'd been feeling that afternoon. They'd been trying this electronic setting and he had been racing with this or he had been practicing with this tyre and he thought everything was good and automatically he was just completely focused on the race weekend in Mizano and um, I think that is that's something we've seen a lot of Maverick sorry a lot of from Maverick uh, through his years so uh, yeah it, it's all building towards that uh, that world championship isn't it 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the only thing that matters to him is winning a championship. And that's, um, uh, you see exactly the same with, with Marquez. They enjoy the win, but in the end, it's about the championship. It's the championship that counts. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So, David, uh, David, you've chosen Maverick Vinales. I'm going to go with Johan Zarco because, don't get me wrong, Vinales' race was spectacular, but he was my firm pre-race favourite. And I've never in a million years would have envisioned Zarco not only leading the race, but as we mentioned earlier in the show, taking big chunks out of the leaders and you know going forth with just looking like a seasoned pro, looking like a guy that had been on yeah. the MotoGP grid for... I don't know, four or five years um, and making some of the other guys look, frankly, quite ordinary. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that, that's exactly what it is. He did. He he looked like he belonged um, uh, at the front of the race. Um, uh, that was almost shocking to see that it was just uh, it was just absolutely outstanding. Yeah. Exactly, and I know we've had some fantastic rookie showings in the MotoGP class in the past, you know, ten years. But for for him to do that on a satellite bike as well, and I do know that you know everyone says that the Yamaha is a very neutral bike; it's a very easy bike to get on with. Um, but I mean, look at Paul Espargaro and and Bradley Smith, two very very capable riders, and they never seem to be able to to reach those peaks um, aboard the Yamaha. Yeah, exactly. I think with the uh, with the Yamaha, there are a few bikes like that. With it's very easy to go um, uh, quite fast on a Yamaha, um, but to go uh, that last bit, getting the uh, uh, actually you know getting to the point where you can actually re- win races on it, you can get to within sort of like ninety nine percent fairly easily. Uh, it's that last one percent which is the hardest thing. Uh, all through last year, uh, Paul, especially Paul Spargaro was complaining that the harder you try to go, the faster you try to go on that bike, the slower you go, and the less you concentrate. Alex Lowe said, said exactly the same thing when he uh, when he substituted for um, for, for Bradley Smith, uh, which was you have to achieve this sort of zen-like state where you're just riding around, not thinking about trying to make the thing go fast, but just let the bike do uh, do everything. And that's it's completely counterintuitive. So, as I am a gentleman, David, I will let you decide. Uh, Maverick Vinales or Johan Zarco, who is our big winner of the first MotoGP race weekend? But, but, uh, well, I think in the, I mean, for the championship, there's no question. I mean, Maverick Vinales is the big winner for the championship. However, I think for the long term, maybe Johan Zarco, because all of a sudden he's on a lot of people's radars and a lot of people will be thinking, oh, right, OK, right. They've all made a little a little note in their uh, in their notebooks for should Mr. Zarco become available, um, there will be large sums of money thrown at him. <laughs> Absolutely not a bad situation to be in, as you know yeah. all too well, David. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm just rubbish at catching, so it keeps on. Uh, <laughs> oh, so yeah. that's why. Okay, right. Okay, uh, no worries. So that leads us into uh, our, our big losers of the weekend. Then, and again, this is this isn't just restricted to one class. This can this can be a, a guy in Moto Three, Moto Two, or Moto GP. Um, David, who you should you should go first. You should go first because I went first last time. So, who is your big loser? Okay, right. Well, my big loser was Jorge Lorenzo. Uh, basically, since he stepped on that Ducati, everyone was saying that this was going to be the race weekend where Jorge Lorenzo took or equaled Valentino Rossi's uh, record of winning back-to-back races on different makes and machinery. And, you know, uh, yeah, there were a few difficult moments throughout the preseason, but there was always that kind of clear progression throughout preseason. You know, if he had a really tough first day at a test, like in Sepang, for example, by the final day, he was a lot more positive, felt he had made a lot more progress with with how he needed to adapt to ride that bike. And here there just seemed to be, there was just something lacking the whole time. And it was one of those, it was just like one of those weekends we saw last year where he seemed a little bit clueless and he just didn't quite, you know, he just, he was stuck. Um, You know, at certain stages he was, um, he was fast on one tire, but he wasn't able to make it last. And then the other tire, you know, in the medium tire, he wasn't just he just wasn't fast enough, basically. And yeah, the race, you could say that that first incident that turned four, where he ran off track, that was a bit of a rookie mistake. And he managed to make some progress. But, uh, you know, at the end, he was battling with Loris Baz. And yeah. this is uh, this is a man that Ducati have paid, you know, out the nose for yeah. and uh, he was 20 seconds behind Andrea De Vizioso. so yeah I think Lorenzo that was a, that was a bad race for him that wasn't just you know uh, yeah, okay yeah it's his first race for Ducati we can accept that but I do think that he underperformed as well yeah absolutely I mean I, I do 
I mean, yeah, I do wonder if the circumstances play, uh, played against him because obviously it's always been his weak point has been performance on a, on a sketchy track, basically low grip conditions. He's not very good on low grip conditions. And it doesn't matter whether it's wet or dry, um, it's uh, when it's uh, it's low grip because you can have a lot of grip in the wet and, uh, and he's, you know, he can still be fast. But this was sort of stuck halfway between the two um, and it was, he knows as the the longer the the race was being uh, delayed it was getting later that meant more chance of a uh, more chance of the dew forming knowing that there was going to be less grip you have to wonder whether that was also something that he was um uh, he was concerned about he was thinking about sure. um uh, if that sort of played on his mind also you know it is his first race on on the ducati and he knows how much pre- uh, how much pressure is uh, is on him you also have to wonder if that sort of got to him uh, i think at some point he po- he sort of disappeared off to uh, uh, to go to the little boys room which a lot of riders do sort of then but you have to wonder if it uh, if that sort of got to his nerves so yeah there was uh, it, it certainly was not not where you hoped uh, to go and it's a good point you say about Valentino Rossi's uh, Rossi's record because he can that chance is gone he can never equal it again yeah yeah exactly and you know it doesn't really bode well for Argentina does it I mean Argentina isn't a track that's known for having a lot of grip it's going to be filthy when they first go yeah. out there on Friday morning and you know if there's any rain throughout the weekend just look at last year's race uh, the, yeah. track, the track was yeah. a disaster and although Ducati has a good record there uh, if there's not much grip, um, you can't imagine Jorge um, feeling comfortable. No, exactly, and he's not going to go there feeling particularly uh, particularly confident either, which is not going to help. So yeah, it's it's uh, it, it's not at all a good start to um, uh, to L- Lorenzo's career. Absolutely, his Ducati career. Uh, yes. Okay. So David, that means uh, that means you still have to tell me uh, you're a big loser of the weekend. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, Lorenzo is the big loser, but for me, the big loser for this weekend is uh, Enea Bastianini in Moto in Moto Three because last year Bastianini looked like uh, being a title candidate, and all through testing, he's just been nowhere. And then in the race, he was absolutely nowhere. Um, where did he? Uh, where 16th. did he? Sixteenth. Uh, so he ends up outside of the points. And he's in a very good team, you know. I mean, he's uh, he's in the Estrella Galicia team. It's not the team; it really is. It really is him. And for him to to, to not score points on with that team on his debut, when his uh, his teammate finished what fourth? Fourth, yeah. Yeah, that's a really, really bad, uh, bad start. To an extent, there's also, I mean, Nicola Bulega is also was also a loser because he looked really, really fast all um, uh, all weekend as well, and then he ended up fourteenth. Uh, uh, yeah, that was a surprise. And, that was a big yeah. surprise. Yeah, yeah they, exactly. That was that was a big surprise because he basically lost touch with the uh, with the group once the group split, and that was uh, and that was his race weekend over. So that was that was a big loser. But yeah, I mean, uh, for me, Bastianini, uh, Bastianini's championship. Uh, it, I mean, it's stu- always stupid to write people off after one round, but um, uh, just this just seemed a confirmation that Bastianini um, is in for a really, really terrible year. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's not even as if he's changed teams and changed bikes. You know, this is he's gone from Honda to Honda. Um, and it must be an added slap in the face whenever his replacement, Jorge Martin, is suddenly looking yeah. like he could be a guy that could feature in the championship fight. Um, it was interesting. Yeah, exactly. exactly, because teammate is fourth and his former, or the, the bloke who took over who took over his bike, is third. So it's uh, it, it, it's... Yeah, how it, it's it's disastrous. Yeah, it was interesting. I was speaking to someone that has worked with Jorge um, Navarro in the past, and we were talking about Jorge's you know terrible second half to 2016. And this person was saying that Jorge never quite felt totally at home in that Monlao Estrella Galicia Moto Three squad. Um, they didn't go into specifics, but just never felt as though it was his team and it was geared up to be fully behind him. And you just wonder, with Bastianini being Italian, not speaking, I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure he doesn't speak that much Spanish, coming into a team which has a young Catalan rider who yeah. has, who's been with the team for a few years now and who knows how to work, knows the methodology, knows everything about it. You just wonder, Bastianini, how long is it going to take him to learn 
exactly what's needed to get the best out of the team and vice versa for them to get the best out of the rider. It, yeah. it, it, it doesn't seem that that is, I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm jumping to wild conclusions. But no, it, but if you, if, you think, if you think about the time that uh, when Alex Rince and Alex Marcus were in the team together, sure, you had, sure. had exactly the same situation. Sure. And Rince really felt that Mar- Marquez was being favoured by Emilio Alzamora, who runs the team. Uh, and th- there is some evidence that this is not a good thing because look who's a factory Suzuki rider and look who's um, struggling to finish on the podium in, in Moto2 still. It's definitely one to keep an eye on uh, as the season transpires. And, yeah. you know, after all, it is the first race, so we shouldn't write anyone off just yet. But uh, but no, absolutely. Um, Bastini, terrible, terrible preseason and it didn't get much better in the race. So who was the biggest loser? You get to choose. <laughs> uh, I'll go for Lorenzo in this case. Yeah, he has twelve and a half million reasons to be uh, to be feel bad about uh, about that. Exactly, but his bank account ain't one. <laughs> this is true. this again uh, uh, on a uh, on a bit of a side note. It always uh, there, there was a lot of discussion about uh, you know the cost of aerodynamics and all the rest of it. But wherever Ducati is spending on um, aerodynamics, it's uh, it's going to be a small fraction of Jorge Lorenzo's uh, uh, um, uh, salary, and that's, that's the same for. You know, I don't know what I don't know what Valentin Rossi. I mean, he's probably now on sort of six, seven, or eight million, and um, Vinales will be on th- sort of you know, three or four million, and uh, Marquez will be on ten million or whatever. And um, there is no way they're paying that on uh, the, any of those manufacturers are, pay, are, are spending that on on aerodynamics. So it's not really the problem. <laughs> Exactly. Well, on that note, I think that brings uh, our, our discussion on the first round of the 2017 season to a close. Uh, David, thank you very, very much for your uh, for your time, for your company. It's been it's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you very much for your uh, excellent hosting of the program. It has likewise been a pleasure. <laughs> And uh, thank you as well, listener, for your company. Uh, we're delighted that you're able to join us for this episode of the Paddock Pass podcast. We should be back very soon with the next episode. Um, it's that time of the show where we have to remind you uh, to follow us on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast. Uh, Twitter as well. We are at Paddock Pass pod. And if you're listening to us via iTunes, if you could leave us a little review, that would just make David Emmett's life you wouldn't believe how happy he gets when he reads a positive review on itunes his eyes light up so don't deprive us of that site please do that sometime in the future leave us a review and we'll speak to you soon bye Hi, well, you're listening to Paddock Pass Cod- Podcast, but you know what else? Did I say Paddock Pass Podcast? I did say Paddock Pass Podcast. It's a first. Anyway. It's a new one. Right. <clears throat>